I was holding onto it during the crash. Okay, so during the 2008 crash. So if you looked at look at it in terms of the valuation alone during the time I lived there, uh, it went from like a $66,000 valuation when I bought it. And it had gone down literally, I have an appraisal of like $13,000, I think, in 2009 after the crash um, because I had refinanced and uh, through this HARP refinance program where they allowed people who were underwater to refinance and take advantage of lower interest rates because they're, the banks were trying to get people to not foreclose on their properties and walk away from them. Hello and hola friends. Welcome to the Medicine, Marriage, and Money podcast, the only podcast for dual physician couples who want to achieve marital interdependence and financial freedom together. In this podcast, you will learn how to show up as the best version of yourself so that you can love intentionally and build a stronger and more financially savvy relationship with your spouse. And I am your host, a physician mom, a doctor's wife, and a life coach, Dr. Kate Mangona. Welcome. Bienvenidos. Before we get into the show, let's talk about this week's sponsor, Deputy. At your practice, what happens when staff call out sick? How much time does it take to find replacements who can fill in? If you need to cancel appointments because you're short-staffed, what does that cost your practice? Deputy is a simple app that's helped more than 250,000 workplaces tackle this problem. Deputy makes it easy to schedule staff in line with patient demand communicate schedules with your team and instantly find replacements when someone calls out sick. To learn more and try Deputy out for free, go to drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash deputy. Hello friends, this is Kate Mangona and today please help me welcome on our podcast episode of Medicine, Marriage and Money, my husband Victor Mangona. Welcome back, Victor. Thank you and welcome baby Isla. Yay! And baby Isla, you probably heard her just sneeze. So you may be hearing her sneeze and um, make some noises too. But thank you for joining me from the basement of my parents' home. <laughs> you can't tell. Yeah. If you can't tell, if you're ever to watch this on video, you will be like, where in the heck are they? Yes, we're in the basement of my parents' home. So we just came back from a nice relaxing weekend at the lake house, and we are here to talk about real estate today. So for those of you who don't know my husband, Victor Mangona, he is a pediatric and proton radiation oncologist in Dallas, Texas, and he has a love and passion for financial education for all, uh, and especially physicians, since we are both physicians. He loves to talk about real estate, what kind of car to buy, what kind of house to buy, everything. What else? What else? Where to send your kids to school? <laughs> car seats. Car seats. Oh my gosh. Yes. No, his current- Actually, I haven't talked about car seats on yeah, my no. show yet. His current addiction is yeah, car seats. looking at car seats. And oh. I think we have at least nine, maybe even more. So yeah. anyway, but today we're going to be focusing on real estate. So Victor, tell me about your first rental property. So our, well, my first property, so before I even, even had met you, um, I had purchased back that we closed on, I closed on December 14, 2006. That was my second year in medical school. My first year in medical school in Detroit, I had rented a two bedroom apartment with a roommate and I was paying $600 a month for my side, my half of the rent plus utilities. And I was also living a little bit farther from school than I wanted to be. 
and I wanted a place closer. I wanted my own place. And if I could get a place for about the same amount I was paying in rent or ideally less, then I thought it would be worth uh, doing it because I knew I would have another at least two and a half more years. And, you know, if you buy a property that's cheaper than rent, then inherently it would perform reasonably well as a rental property. So and this was back in uh, 2006 and the market was was pretty hot real estate wise, hadn't crashed yet. And uh, properties were pretty expensive. A lot of the condos I, I was looking at in Detroit were six figures plus, and I was not interested in buying something over a hundred thousand um, dollars. I was fortunate one day I, I was looking, but not at the moment I was, I don't know, driving somewhere in part of a town called Ferndale. And I had literally just driven by a sign. I said, Oh, let me check this out because it wasn't listed on MLS or on Zillow or anything. And uh, I just looked at it. I drove by. Then I think I went up and knocked on the door um, because it said for sale and they were converting apartment building into condos. And it was uh, the cheapest property was about $66,000, one bedroom, about 700 square feet. So it was under a hundred bucks a square foot. And uh, they had others that were more expensive. They had two bedrooms that were, I think, hundred thousand plus, but I got the I was looking for the cheapest possible one bedroom place I could get. And uh, these were conversions. They were taking an apartment and converting each unit basically one at a time and selling them off as renovated condos. They'd put in some money into redoing the floors, updating the kitchen, updating the bathroom, and having not really a luxury condo, but a, a reasonably nice condominium. And so I bought my first property. It took a, this was back in the days when it, you didn't really need to have much to get a mortgage for yourself. I didn't have a job. I was in medical school, so I had zero income. I'm sure you're super scared about buying this. Like this sounds really intimidating to me to buy anything well, this big. I mean, the mortgage was going to be 350 bucks a month or something, maybe okay. 400 bucks a month. My mortgage most recently was 319 For like a 90. 20 or 30 or what? How many years? Um, I don't even remember. When I bought it, I bought it with a 80% and a 10% back when you could get two different mortgages. So I put 10% down and that was just like $6,000. And I had that because I had worked previously as a teacher. So I still had some money. And uh, once I, I closed, yeah, I had an 80 and a 10. So the 80% uh, percent was a 30 year mortgage, I believe. I don't remember the rate. It wasn't that great of a rate. It was probably like five and a half percent or oh, something. Wow. I mean, that's, you, you say that now because you're used <laughs> to like these rock bottom rates, but back in at that time, that was probably a really good, reasonable rate. Um, and then the other other 10%, which was the second mortgage, that was high. That was like maybe 9% or something. Um, I don't remember what it was. I actually, I paid that off pretty quickly once I, um, I don't even know when I paid it off, but it, it was relatively high interest. But this was back when you, you literally, you got mortgages without any income they would just do these no documentation loans called no doc loans or stated income loans where you just literally state your income and there was nothing to, nobody actually checked it, which was wow. crazy. I don't honestly remember the details of what mortgage type I got in terms of, did I get a no documentation loan or not? But yeah, because you had no income. I so. had no income and I didn't lie about it either. I just told them straight up, this is like how much money I have and this is how much money I made. And, um, I think in two, the year before, I mean, I was a teacher before I started medical school, so I might have had some income on my W-2 from the year prior because um, I bought this basically starting my second year of medical school. 
but and I had also worked in the summertime between first year and second year, so I had like a summer job. Okay. Uh, so basically, that was my income was like <laughs> a summer job income, like doing some research for, you know, it made a few thousand bucks for the summer. It wasn't really anything exciting, but yeah. So I got that mortgage, and at the end of the day, it was still cheaper to own that property than it was for me to rent half of a two bedroom that I was already living in. Although that place had more amenities, had like a had a pool and stuff like that. But the pool often, I feel like never was actually in service. Um, Not in Michigan. Yeah. And it was cold most of the year anyway. So it, it was financially very reasonable. I, it was, I was still paying less than uh, at the end of the day, the utilities are really cheap. I had to pay HOA of like 140 a month, but that included my water and it included my heat. Um, I only had to pay for electricity, which for me alone was like 20 bucks a month. So I didn't really have to pay anything above and beyond my mortgage. Um, the HOA, like 140 a month, property tax was about the same amount. Um, it's about maybe 140 a month or so when I most recently sold it. And um, so, yeah, we were looking at like 600, 700 bucks or so um, all in, including utilities, maybe maybe up to 800 if you include um, more my uh, insurance, but it was it was still cheap and pretty much the same as what I was paying in rent plus utilities living in a two bedroom. And the rent I'm sure would have gone up over the the years I was there because I I lived there for second year of med school, third year of med school, fourth year of med school, and I stayed there for for residency. So then five more full years. So I actually was there for seven and a half years. Mm -hmm. So actually a reasonable amount of time. I mean, did you know you were going to stay there for that long, or what if you would have only been there for three years? It would have been fine. Okay. It would have been fine. I mean, it was rentable already. I knew that the market rent for that probably was going to be, as a one bedroom, probably at least 800 bucks. Um, and I mean, that was uh, probably really, okay. really conservative. Well above your mortgage. So how did it perform? Well, yeah. So once we moved, down. once we moved out of it, well, so it's interesting because I was holding onto it during the crash. Okay. So during the 2008 crash. So if you looked at, look at, it in terms of the valuation alone during the time I lived there, uh, it went from like a $66,000 valuation when I bought it and it had gone down literally, I have an appraisal of like $13,000, I think in 2009 after the crash um, because I had refinanced and uh, through this HARP refinance program where they allowed people who were underwater to refinance and take advantage of lower interest rates because they're the banks were trying to get people to not foreclose on their properties and walk away from them. Um, so they wanted you to be able to get take advantage of the lower rates. So, I mean, this is actually a government program that came out. And so um, when that program came out, I applied and you have to go still through the whole appraisal process to refinance. And the comparable properties were all foreclosures, uh, other one bedroom condos within a five mile radius uh, of which some of them were literally like, $12,000 at foreclosure. So those were comparables and that was my appraisal. Um, it was just uh, something that had to be done, but it was pretty shocking to see. It's like, wow, I could have had, man, if I had like a hundred of those units, that'd be incredible. Um, <laughs> right now, if I could have bought a hundred units at $12,000, $13,000 a pop, that would be incredible because um, right now it still rents for a thousand plus a month. Well, yeah, but we can always say what, what could have been, right? Well, Actually. there weren't a hundred of those units. Um, but, uh, they actually ended up there, they were, they ended up only selling off like 10 out of the 40 units as condos and the remaining 30 units ended up going to foreclosure while I was in medical school for about 600,000 bucks. So 
somebody snagged those for like $20,000 a door. Um, as before, I actually had any of the knowledge I have now, really. Um, I mean, I'm now way more resourceful in terms of if I needed $600,000, I would find it um, by tonight, but uh, and not my own money. Because at that time, I mean, I was broke, but I just didn't have the knowledge to find a way to make it happen. But $600,000 for 30 units would have been incredible. So, um, and I mean, this is the opposite of what I did because I rented all five years I was in Michigan. Yeah, but you also rented you know? super cheap. I, I so. rented super cheap. Yeah, because I was very frugal and money conscious. But here, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking we met on day one of intern year, you know, so we knew each other all five years. What if we could have gone back in time and like on the in the movie Frozen, like we got engaged the first day we met and then we got married and I could have moved in with you, lived with you for that five that years. That would have been really cheap. And saved a bunch of rent for my five years. Yeah. I mean, you're only paying $500 a month as it was. So yeah. you would have probably saved yourself like 250 bucks a month. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if we were splitting rent on like uh, a $60,000 condo. That'd be <laughs> super cheap. I mean, I would have, we'd have to basically figure out where we we're going to put our clothes. That would no, have been... Yeah. My car payment was more than my rent. My, my, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we still have that car. Um, but yeah, the, the proportion of rent versus car payment that was disproportionate at that time. Um, but so I held on to it when we, when we got married and we, we left Detroit in 2014. Five years um, later for me. Five years later for you. After I met him. Yep. Yep. And like eight years later, after I, I had bought the property, 2000, yeah, six. So after we moved out, I, I had it rented. Um, and I think I had it rented probably around 800 bucks a month uh, initially. Um, I Did might you talk about all the costs you put into it to make it like- You know, I didn't spend really much nice. money. You know, when I was in, in residency, I probably put in no more than $2,000 of upgrades. What? All those tiles, yeah, that it, mural. It was so cheap. So I, wow. I paid somebody like a hundred bucks. So back then I was broke. So I, I like would shop around and get things super cheap. I don't do that anymore. But like I had somebody paint a mural on the wall <laughs> yes, for like you do. for like a hundred or two hundred bucks. I mean, I still do, but it's it not was the same. beautiful. It was beautiful. Yeah, I probably paid paid no more than two hundred dollars to have somebody paint a what mural. Was the artist of that mural? Um, I can't remember at the moment. Oh, but the Kandinsky. oh the uh, Kandinsky. Kandinsky, yeah, the Kandinsky. Yeah, yeah Kandinsky. of course. I think I meant the person who actually did the mural. Yeah. Um. But yeah, my, I Kandinsky had it painted on my wall. And then when I when I became a, a resident um, that summer before residency, I um, redid my kitchen tiles and countertops. And I did that for like literally 600 bucks of materials. And I did it myself because I had time off to figure out what I was doing and tiled my bathroom. And had I had somebody put in a shower because I didn't want to do the, I hate doing plumbing work and I had to actually take a, like a flamethrower thing to weld the, pipes or something um and i had somebody put in some ceiling lights in the living room but literally i spent no more than two thousand dollars on all the upgrades of the property over the course of the years of me living there because it's a condo i mean i don't have any exterior or anything and all the maintenance on the outside is all taken care of so it was just really the inside of my one bedroom apartment and it had already been done it was already redone by the time i moved in so there really wasn't much to do. Um, and the things I did didn't really add value to it per se, because it's a condominium. Okay. So why did you sell it? Well, so we were renting it out well, and I was renting it out for about $1,000 a month by the time in this past year and mm -hmm. had a, ten a tenant for two years. So it was cash flowing really well. And I had property management. I was doing no work for it. Um, Besides emailing the property management Yeah. Dealing, dealing, emailing <laughs> the property management you know, getting the documents together once a year for the accountant, up 
um, I'd have to renew the insurance every year, which sometimes it got to be a difficult thing because it was, I put into an LLC and insurance companies don't like to necessarily insure things that are in LLCs. And so I had to pay a higher rate for insurance than I would have wanted to. Um, but it was cash flowing really well. I mean, it was cash flowing 300 bucks a month. And when I bought it, I only put in like $6,000. So if you think about it in terms of how much I was making per year, let's say it was cash flowing 3000 bucks a year. Um, and I put $6,000 into it. Then you look, look at what they call the cash on cash return, $3,000 of return per year divided by $6,000 of money invested. Then that's a 50% cash on cash return, which that's is pretty huge. Incredible. You can't just get those numbers. Um, granted, this is also, I bought it years prior and renting it now. Um, if I had rented out immediately after purchasing it, it would not nearly be as, as high of a cash on cash return. Um, also about a two years, two summers ago, they had an assessment on the property that was about 10,000 bucks. Um, they had to redo the roof, which hadn't been done in a long time. Um, but granted, I hadn't owned this property now for 15 years, which was crazy because I didn't really think I was going to hold on to something for 15 years, but um, they had to redo the roof and a lot of other things. And they really got the place nicer. And I knew that if I rode that out, the property would A, appreciate, but also B, the rents would be higher. So I probably easily could rent it out for about 1100 a month right now. But at the end of the day, um, there was a lot of equity, well, relatively speaking, it was, I knew I could get about $100,000 for it um, as if I sold it. And again, I only put in like 6,000 bucks. So uh, I was about to, I, I could have cashed out and made about $50,000 when I sold. So that would be like nine Xing my initial investment. Uh, granted, there was that $10,000 of capital expenditure. So not quite 50,000. You could think of it as like a $40,000 gain on my 6,000. But um, at the end of the day, it, it just, it only makes us about $4,000 a year. Um, and there was all that equity in there. So if you think about the amount of cash flow we are making based on the equity baked in there, if I'm making $4,000 a year in cash flow, but there's $50,000 that's like 8%, okay, which is okay. But there was also very limited upside. I knew that at this point, it had already gained a good amount of value mm -hmm. over the past two years with the renovations they had done. And as a condominium, the appreciation is really thwarted. You can't really appreciate as strong in a condo mm -hmm. as you can in others because you don't own much land. It's really land that appreciates, not, not properties. So um, in the meantime, I mean, we've amassed a, a very large real estate portfolio. This was the smallest asset in our portfolio and it was still requiring a little bit of time every year. I probably easily put in 10 hours of time and 10 hours of time to make 4,000 bucks, just not really worth it. It's just one more thing to worry about um, that I could reallocate that capital into another investment, probably cash flow about the same amount, 4,000 bucks a year, have more opportunity to appreciate in valuation um, because it's not, we don't buy condominiums and in other investments that we do. And I wouldn't have to worry about it. This free up the stress and free up the bookkeeping efforts and the accounting. That's one less yeah. thing to, to deal with. Yeah. So it was a little bit more than just that 4,000, 10 hours, 4,000. So it was, it was some, it was a lot of things. Yeah. But um, I could basically cash out, reinvest the money, still make the same amount of money somewhere else and put less time, effort and have less stress in, involved. So right. it just it just made sense to clear it off the books. Plus, we lived so far away. 
Yeah, but we still didn't really have to deal with anything. Actually, you, people are better investors when they don't live in the same place as the property. <laughs> yeah. When you live nearby, then you start trying to do everything yourself. And you're like, why am I dealing with all this stuff? Mm -hmm. And then that's when the headaches really become headaches because you're self-dealing with them as opposed to having other people deal with them. Got it. So that brings upon, okay, why you decided to sell it. Yeah. What about how? Like, did you put it on the market? Well, I knew that it was going to sell for about 100000 because there was another one bedroom that sold in February for 100000 and uh, remember, I said that 30 of those units never actually sold as condos. So there's one entity that owns those other 30 units. So I just emailed them. I knew they had bought that other one bedroom. And I said, hey, um, my tenant's moving out. Um, it's ready to go for the next tenant. We already have it cleaned up. Um, are you interested in this property? Which I knew they would be because um, it's a good property for them. And the more units they have, the more control they have. And Ideally, you'd want to have all 40 units. There's a lot more value in owning a, a property all outright as opposed to having it fractured with other investors or other owners. So I knew they would want it. And I also knew that other buyers who would want to get a mortgage, they were not going to be able to get a regular traditional mortgage on this because um, so few of the units were condominiums that most mortgage companies would not actually... Um, do that loan, especially these days, mortgages are a lot harder to get. So I knew it was going to have to go to a cash buyer and I knew how much it was going to go for because the other property that just sold. So I asked the owner, I said, just give me your single highest and best offer. I'm not going to negotiate. I'm not going to go back and forth. You only have one opportunity. I'm either going to take it or I'm not going to take it. Um, and I gave them basically like 48 hours to do that. And they gave me an offer 48 hours the Friday before Memorial Day. And um, if they didn't take, if they didn't give me an offer, or if I didn't like it, I was going to have it listed the following day on Saturday Memorial Weekend. Um, and I would have had offers lined up. Um, but I knew that the cash offer, I knew how much it was going to ultimately go for. So they offered me the 100 And so I took it. And um, I didn't have to list it. So I didn't have to pay realtor fees on each, on each end of the deal. Um, we did end up paying a person who the manager works with just to you know, put up all the paperwork together. I think I paid like 1%. It was, you know, nothing. And so um, um, it was really easy. Uh, I gave them like 14 days to close. And then the um, title company that that um, other entity who has the rest of the properties that they, they work with regularly, they had their title person put all the paperwork together. Um, I mean, I knew what I was looking for. I went through it all and uh, signed all the documents and they wired the money to me. Um, I just did a mobile notary on the day before closing. Like 6.30 a.m. Yeah. I was like, can you meet me at 6.30 a.m. at Torchy's Tacos so I can get it signed before I go to work? And uh, I signed. They signed. And uh, the next day, the money was wired in my account uh, all within two weeks. So it was like completely stressless. Um, and I just had to... The association charged me another month of association fees the following month because I was on auto debit. So I was like, wait a second. I thought that would have turned off, but um, I had to get them to refund that and I had to cancel my property insurance. And other than that, um, I think I'm done. That's the first property I've ever sold. And um, it was super easy. And then we closed on another deal literally within three weeks of that. So that money already got reinvested and didn't even sit in the bank account for less than a month. So uh, it, it was, yeah, it's been a busy summer. Well, to kind of close this up, as, uh, as we talk about your first rental property 
ever of of your own. Would you recommend that other med students or residents do this? Uh, is this something that is that's manageable? Something that even like a busy medical student studying and and uh, or resident always in the hospital can can manage to to do? Well, you definitely can. The, the biggest advantage of doing real estate investing in properties that you live in when you're a resident or even a med student is that you're buying properties that are really inexpensive. Um, and those are the properties that you're more likely to have good cash flow on, mm-hmm. right? And people, when you're buying your attending houses, those are not in general the best single family mm-hmm. long-term rental properties. Right. Um, I mean, in an ideal world, if somebody's like going to go, you know, max this strategy out. I mean, what you would ideally want to do is start buying either like duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes um, and literally house hack, like buy one a year through med school and through residency. Now, this wouldn't necessarily be easy. I mean, if you had a spouse that uh, was in, was in, interested in doing this as well, this is an incredibly great <clears throat> strategy to build a foundation, a portfolio of cash flowing rental properties. If you're buying uh, inexpensive properties that make sense for you, like if you're buying a fourplex, you should be able to buy a fourplex where the three other units pay for all four right. uh, or close to it, which would bring your cost of living very, very low, um, potentially zero. zero. Um, and just have to deal with, you know, managing the asset. But if you did that for four years of med school and six years of training, at the end of 10 years, you literally could have a 40 unit portfolio and you could potentially just off of that retire already. I mean, if, if you're cash flowing $300 per door and you have 40 units, um, that's $12,000 a month of cash flow at the end of training. That's way more money than you're making as a resident. I was saying you said 10 years. He's talking oh, about 10 years. If you did for 10 years. Yeah. If you did 40 years. units yeah. and you cash flow $300 per door, mm-hmm. 300 times 40 is $12,000. No, I mean, you gr- bring up a great point, you know, buy a, buy a, a new property every year for 10 years and start during med school. And we can, we can uh, talk more about this in a future episode about how this, this was a, a, a past goal to buy one property a year for 10 years, build up our portfolio. We're going to talk more about that later, but we're going to close up here with um, some take-home points. So I think take-home point number one is what what seems impossible to one person is actually super and totally possible if you just look look at it through a different through a different set of eyes. When I first moved to Michigan, I had my uncle telling me I needed to buy up some properties, live in them, sell them when I moved away, you know, after, cause I knew I was going to be there for five years for residency. I was like, that's impossible. I'm going to be a resident. I'm going to be in the hospital all the time. I'm going to be studying for boards. Guess what? Well, my future husband did it. So totally possible. Take home point number two, take home point number two. Oh, me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a lot more possibilities financially than we often give ourselves credit for. Um, I mean, I bought that property with literally like no money, right? So one of the biggest limiting beliefs about real estate is that you need a lot of money to invest in real estate. And that's actually super false, right? There's a lot of ways to invest in real estate without bringing your own money. I mean, back at that time, I basically bought a house with nothing down or just 10%. Um, But there are still a lot of ways to buy properties without using your own capital. 
um, mm -hmm. with, with investors. And so um, lack of money is actually, it's, it's not a limit. It's not a, a limiting factor. Um, certainly money can make real estate investing potentially easier in some ways. Um, but I mean, back when I had no money, I was really resourceful, right? I did like all my renovations with very little cash out of pocket because I just didn't have the money. Um, you can do a lot without having cash, but it does mean you're going to have to utilize time, hustle, resources, networking, mm -hmm. other things that aren't capital, um, but you have to be have to be resourceful about it. And I think take home no, no, point number three here is you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to uh, to just observe what's going on with the market, real estate. I mean, you, there was nobody to predict what happened right after you bought it, the market crash, and then what happened, the, you know, this past year. Oh, everything just gaining in value like crazy. So you kind of there's it's really difficult to stay married to your 10 year goals completely. Like you can have them, you can put them in place, you can have a vision that you're striving towards, but you have to be flexible with those depending on your environment, like what what's going on around you. Right. So, you know, when I bought the property, I knew it would cash flow as a rental property. And so what I look at investing is how am I protecting my downside? And so the downside here is protected because no matter what the value of the property is, if it's generating cash flow, then it's generating cash flow. Um, and is in a relatively very stable area in terms of uh, the value is so cheap, there was always demand at that price point. I was never worried about vacancy. I literally had less than a month of vacancy over the entire period of time that we owned the property as a rental. Um, I mean, literally, it would not usually be vacant for more than a week, if not just days between renters. Um, and so uh, even regardless of the valuation of the asset, I knew that it would cash flow. But with the value of the asset jumping up in the past year um, and reevaluating, always reevaluating your total right. total goals and total portfolio, um, it was time to, to dispose of this and let somebody else uh, make money off of exactly. it. Exactly. There's always somebody else who can... Uh make more money when you sell when you sell a property. So you're 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 helping someone else. And I hope uh, you guys follow Victor and uh, join his Facebook community. What what where's your Facebook community? Victor? It's on Facebook. <laughs> What's it called? 39.6 community. 39.6 community. Yeah, maybe you can put some videos up on there um, this week as we're not bothering you since we will be uh, in a different state uh, than you. And uh, if, if you guys are listening to this, you know that I am currently living with my parents right now in Kansas and he is working in Dallas, but he came down to visit us for the weekend. So Missouri's up. Oh. Yeah, the city's up. Oh, that's right. Yes, he came up. He came up. He came up. So, okay. So let's give you some walk away questions. I hope you guys walk away asking yourself, what is stopping me from investing in my next real estate investment? Or what type of real estate investment am I most interested in investing in? Maybe it's single family. Uh, maybe it's multifamily where we're going to hit on in part two of this show next week. So stay tuned. We're going to be talking about multifamily. Walk away asking. Do you have any walk away questions, Victor? What people should be walking away asking themselves? How can you invest in yourself? How can you invest in yourself? Okay. Well, much love. 
to you and your spouse. Oh, to you and your spouse as well. <laughs> and your three daughters. Say bye-bye, baby Isla. Okay, see you next week, multi-family. What a fabulous show with Dr. Victor Mangona. Of course, I may be a tad bit biased. Before we end, here's a quick reminder. If you want to boost efficiency across your practice and make staff scheduling easier, try the Deputy app. You can try this award-winning technology for free by going to drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash deputy. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional, medical, or financial advice. The opinions provided on this podcast are those of myself or the invited guest alone. They do not represent the opinions of any particular institution. Always seek the advice of your physician or financial advisor with any questions you may have of a medical condition or financial plan. This is for your entertainment only.